0: Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking about Donald Trump. Yes, I can hear the collective groan from those of you who have Trump fatigue. But the devil is in the details, and I think there's details that have been missed about the Trump presidency, the Trump era, that have slipped through the proverbial cracks. Furthermore, if we examine these details more closely, I believe that the Trump presidency can tell us something about capitalism since Reagan and the emergence of what could be called gangster capitalism in the United States. And gangster is an apropos term, my guest would argue. Joining us is David K. Johnston, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and author of the best-selling The Making of Donald Trump, as well as the brand-new title, The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about one of my sponsors. Are you looking for holistic therapy in California? Then look no further than Alexander Yu. Alexander specializes in helping patients with Grief, trauma, PTSD, issues pertaining to gender and LGBTIQ, as well as marriage and relationship counseling. And he does it with a welcoming and all-embracing approach. So if you're looking for a therapist in the California area who can meet your needs, you can do no better than Alexander Yu. Marriage and Family Therapist, California license number... One zero two eight eight six. You can reach Alexander by calling or texting three two three eight three four nine eight two eight or by email at therapy at And with that being said, let's get right to our conversation with David K. Johnston, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and author of the new book, The Big Cheat. How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Hey, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell. Available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town. His only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremell highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest I always enjoy having on. I think it's his second appearance on the show. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter, best selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. 13-year veteran of the New York Times, uh, co-founder of DCReport.org, and uh, author of the new book, The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. David K. Johnston, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having me on again, Joe. So, David, I'm really interested in talking about this book because, you know, I, I had... Uh, another journalist on recently uh, Nina Burley uh, mm-hmm. who I think has been a real veteran uh, journalist uh, in in DC politics and whatnot and we were talking about how Trump and these figures around Trump like Steve Bannon uh, would act as if they're you know uh, pro working class you know Bannon would uh, go around talking about how I used to be a Goldman Sachs guy but now I'm not anymore and yet when we look more and more, at Donald Trump and the figures around him, it doesn't seem like they care much about the working class. It seems like they're, you know, vulture capitalists is the term Nina Burleigh used. I, I would say they're almost like gangsters or, or gangster capitalists. And I think more than any other journalist, uh, you've really shown that that's what the Trump phenomena is. It seems like these people weren't interested in anything else other than enriching, enriching themselves. So for my listeners that didn't listen to our last interview, how did you come up Upon the topic of Donald Trump?
1: Well, uh, 1988, I left the Los Angeles Times, where I had been the first reporter in the early 80s, the first reporter ever to seriously investigate the LAPD and show that they weren't at all with their public images. And it ruined my career at the LA Times because the editors didn't want to hear the truth. Um, So I left and went to the Philadelphia Inquirer as the Atlantic City Bureau Chief in 1988 because I believed that casino gambling was about to spread all across America because of the Supreme Court decision. And I wrote a book while I was there called Temples of Chance, how America Inc. uh, bought out Murder Inc. and took control of the casino business. And Donald is eh, 40% of that book. It opens with him. And the book documents his incompetence, his dishonesty, his lying, cheating. He even cheated players, uh, which never happened at any other casino in Atlantic City. Um, And uh, I decided to keep track of him. He was one of six Americans I decided that were going to continue to be important. And I kept files on. Jack Welch of General Electric was another Uh, Daryl Gates, the LAPD chief, the hotelier, Baron Hilton, who tried to steal almost a billion dollars from starving children. I mean, these are people whose behavior was just egregious. And Donald, uh, when he announced uh, in 2011 he was running for president yet yet again, he'd done this in the past, Um, was seriously covered by politics reporters. Uh, both Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC and I independently said he's not running for president. He's running for a new contract with NBC for his TV show. And sure enough, when he got his new contract, uh, Donald uh, said, "You know, I, I really should be president. No one else is capable of being president but me. But but my TV show needs me more." And the politics reporters all looked like the idiots they had been with egg on their face. So when he announced in 2015. I sat there and went, oh, my God, he's serious, and the politics reporters are going to be dismissive, and he might get into the White House and dropped everything. So I wrote the biography of him, uh, The Making of Donald Trump, that tells about things like the two times he was tried for income tax fraud and, and the testimony that he forged his own tax return. He took the tax return as professionals prepared and forged it. Um, and his his deep involvement with one of the biggest drug lords in America and the extraordinary favors he did for this man that make no sense unless they were in business together. Then in 2018, I published It's Even Worse Than You Think, which was evaluating his first year in office. And then Simon & Schuster, my publisher, asked me to do uh, a third book uh, about Donald and money, so The Big Cheat which just published, uh, came out of that. And all of my Trump books are entirely based on named sources, verifiable records. The only things that uh, you can't trace back to some independent source of information are my direct conversation with Donald, which I reported on at the time, and uh, one anecdote which I've known for years and has been consistently told for years involving how Donald twice assaulted a mayor of New York, and the mayor had to have his police security detail come in and forcibly remove Donald to stop his violence. Everything else, public record, documents, his own signed statements, his own testimony under oath, things like that.
0: So one thing that I really like about how you describe Donald Trump is you sort of describe him constantly as a huckster, his followers as Marx. Uh, you portray him as essentially a carney. And I know you have that story that you've told uh, before about meeting Trump for the first time and saying you pegged him within 30 minutes. You said, oh, he's P.T. Barnum. He's trying to sell me the Fiji Mermaid. And I've always wondered, uh, what was it that allowed you to intuit that that's what Donald was really all about?
1: Well, um, I have written about con artists uh, for my whole career. I mean, I I became a paid journalist in 1966 when I was still in high school and was a front page big city newspaper reporter on staff uh, when I was only 19 years old. And there are con artists that I wrote about in the 1970s who were junior people in in a banking scam. And then when I wrote about them again about 12 years later, lo and behold, they had risen to the next level. and and I've written about others. There's actually a career path out there for con artists on how to rise into being a grifter. And there are FBI agents who've told me about uh, families, not biological families, but crime families who uh, they've tracked and followed for years and occasionally been able to get charges against some of them. And Donald, uh, when I arrived in Atlantic City, um, I knew Donald was gonna be the key story Uh, because all the other casinos are owned by corporations and suits. And I was floored that one of Donald's competitors, the second day or third day I was in town, said, you don't know a damn thing about the casino business. And I said, come on, he owns two casinos. How can that be? He doesn't know a damn thing. then I went and met with the state regulators. And they said, oh, Donald is not an operator. And I go, what does that mean? He's not an operator. He's not an operator. I finally got him to say, well, he doesn't run the casino business. He just owns the casinos. And then I started to meet his executives. And once they trusted me, they began telling me these stories about his absolute incompetence, his acting in ways that damaged the business, how they had to manage and control him all the time. So when I went to meet Donald for a substantive interview, I'd actually met him once before for a meet and greet, Um, I wrote down with the connivance of his guys four very carefully worded questions about casino gaming. And in each case, Donald just assumed what I told him was the truth. It wasn't. And I immediately thought to myself, having just left California for New Jersey, oh my God, this is like those ads on TV. We're the California psychics. We're the real ones. We know if your husband really loves you or your boyfriend's going to marry you. It's nonsense they're they're con artists and uh, realize that, yeah, the difference between Donald and P.T. Barnum, however, is significant. P.T. Barnum never hurt anybody. He actually protected in many ways the people he called freaks um, that he displayed in his shows. Donald hurts people and has no conscience about it whatsoever. Doesn't bother him one bit because he has no empathy for anybody else, not even members of his family. So then.
0: What's interesting, I think, is something you've noted before, is that you view Trump as as the most corrupt of the corrupt. And I mean, if we look back into American history, we've had things like Tammany Hall, uh, the Pendergast machine. And I know that's obscure for a lot of people. But if you Google this stuff, you'll see that there is a history of, of uh, incidents of corruption within um, American political history. What makes Donald Trump different, though,
1: than maybe those incidents and, and those people? Well, let me use the two examples you brought up. So uh, Chester Arthur came out of Tammany Hall, the corrupt machine in the 1800s in New York City. He was elected vice president. The president died, and he suddenly became president a month or so into uh, the four-year term. And the Tammany Hall people came down from New York to the White House and went, oh, boy, are we going to get rich now? What are we going to do And he said, gentlemen, I'm now the president of the United States. I have an office of public trust. I don't do that stuff anymore. Leave the White House and don't ever darken the White House door again. And we got from Chester Arthur, the Pendleton Civil Service Act and other things. Um, Harry Truman, Senator from Missouri, absolutely came out of the Prendergast machine, but Harry never took a dime. He never took a penny. Uh, When he left the White House, in 1953 and got on the train to go back to Missouri, all he had was a pension from the army from World War One, of I think it was 18 or $22 a month, nothing. And that's how we have presidential pensions by the way. So every previous president, even the murderous Andrew Jackson, whose picture Donald Trump hung by the way in the Oval Office or had hung in the Oval Office, um, they did what they thought was best for the country not Donald. Donald has no concept of best for the country, of public service, of a trust. Donald was out for Donald in whatever way he wanted to be. And in fact, he said so when he was uh, president. He said, I have an article Two referring to the Constitution. I have an article Two that says I can do anything I want. And so for the first time, we had this. Now, during his presidency, I traveled all over the world lecturing about him. And I remember people in Europe in two different cities saying, why are you Americans also worked up about Donald Trump? We've had crazy kings and thieves and uh, criminals leading our governments for hundreds of years off and on. Not all the time, but off and on. And you guys have been lucky. You went 240 years before this happened to you. And I said, yeah, but it's happened and we need to be very alert for it. So it's important to understand that the thing that makes distinguishes Donald from the other presidents, and this is how I opened the book: it's even worse than you think. Is Donald was in this for Donald, because that's who he is. He he doesn't know uh, sacrifice, duty. Those are meaningless words to Donald Trump.
0: I mentioned earlier how you know from my reading of you know the Trump presidency and, and talking to people like yourself and Nina Burley. I just feel that people like Bannon, people like Trump, they sold this idea that, oh, we're out for the working class. You know, Trump made that pledge. Uh, You know, me and my family, we're only going to go on a a salary of one dollar while I'm in office and, and all this. How do you approach people who bought into that? And sort of break it to them that no, I mean he he wasn't using the presidency to uh, help the working class. It was all to enrich himself. Uh, right. Even with that whole claim of oh, I'm gonna uh, have a, a one dollar salary.
1: Well, uh, you know, Donald did give his four hundred thousand dollar annual salary to the government in various places. Uh, but during the presidency, his businesses took in revenue of more than one point six billion dollars. So we're talking about. Uh, one one thousandth of that revenue, uh, bupkis. Um, uh, Steve Bannon uh, stole a million dollars from a charity, the Build let's build the wall with charity dollars charity. And the only reason he's not about to go on trial with his confederates is that Donald uh, pardoned him. He didn't pardon the others. He pardoned Steve Bannon. Million dollar theft from a charity. I mean, this is a real sign of a first rate uh, a criminal mind, um, uh, or at least a thoroughly in, infused with criminality mind. And so knowing that Donald Trump was going to continue to be who he was, uh, he wasn't going to be Chester Arthur, who uh, behaved differently, uh, or Harry Truman. There were very few scandals in the Harry Truman administration. Uh, my best friend, David Crook, uh, former Uh, senior editor at the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal uh, and I created a news service called DC Report, singular, dcreport.org, to cover what Trump was doing to the government. We figured Washington reporters would do a real good job of covering palace intrigues, and they did. But they didn't pay much attention to the damage being done to our government. And Donald had to leave a record of many of the things he did. So here's an example of how extreme his greed, his lust for money is. When he met at Mar-a-Lago with Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan, they had a photo op, and the table showed two water glasses, typical prop to use for a photo op like that, right? Two water glasses. I have the invoice. Trump charged the government $3.15 for each glass of water. No opportunity to get money from the government was uh, unexploited by Donald Trump. Uh, He charged, you know, you check into a hotel and you paid $99 for the night, but you look at the door backside and it says, maximum rate for this room, $500. That's what Donald charged, $500, not 99 for the Secret Service and others. And many of these rooms and meals and other expenses were from state and local governments, even though our constitution says that a president may not receive any money from the states, which would include their creatures, cities, counties, other uh, municipal governments, or a foreign power, and but meaning to Donald, the rules don't apply to him. He's always believed he's special, and so there's a record of these things. And and the problem I, I saw as a journalist is, the Washington Post would break a story, the Wall Street Journal would do one, the L.A. Times would do one, the New York Times would do a lot of them. But unless you read all of those news sources every day and were looking for it, all you saw were a little blip, a little loose thread. And I went through and found what I thought were uh, compelling examples and then wrote 18 chapters, someone called them vignettes, saying, here is how Donald Trump and his family and his cronies set out to turn the Oval Office into their personal money machine. The rules be damned, the law be damned, Uh, because they took their cue from the leader, as all organizations do. So I wanted
0: to add to that. It wasn't just Trump, uh, you know, uh, raking up the bill when it came to these hotels, either on the taxpayer dime. Uh, You also talk about how Jared Kushner was doing that right up until Trump was out of office.
1: So Jared Kushner, when Trump was running in 2016, was in severe financial distress, He had bought in 2007 a high-rise office building just down the street from Trump Tower called 666 Fifth Avenue. And he wildly overpaid for it. Uh, $1.8 billion of which 50 million was the down payment. So it's, it's essentially all borrowed money. The recession comes along, the Great Recession. The building falls in value by at least half. It may have fallen to as little as a third of what he paid and he desperately needs a a friendly loan to bail him out. So Kushner goes to the people in Qatar. Qatar is our most important ally in the Middle East. It is where the US Central Command's operation base is. Uh, Qatar is the country that sponsors Al Jazeera, the news service, uh, which for the first time gave people in the Middle East honest news instead of just government controlled news. And the Qataris look at this request for an $800 million loan, and they say, you know, we're rich, but we're not stupid. We're not going to loan you that money. Donald Trump becomes president. And what does he do? He immediately begins attacking Qatar, our ally. And he begins making the points of the Saudis and the Emiratis, who are enemies of Qatar. Uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, just a couple of years ago, they beheaded 39 men for the crime of praying for a better government. That's all they did. They sat on prayer rugs and silently prayed, and the government cut their heads off. Uh, they don't do that in, in Qatar, they do it in Saudi Arabia, not Qatar. And what happened here was very simple by taking up the case of the Saudis, uh, who you'll recall their leader murdered an American journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, and the Emiratis, suddenly the Kushners got a loan they needed to bail themselves out. We, he, Jared Kushner's submarine American national security for money, and Donald Trump was part of that. How much Donald really understood is, is open to to conjecture because Donald doesn't know a Sunni from a Shia much less what Wahhabism is, the brand of uh, the Muslim religion in Saudi Arabia. But Jared Kushner certainly knew what he was doing. And this wasn't the only time this happened as I detail in the book, but we've never had a president sell out our national security for personal financial gain. I mean, we had presidents who made bad decisions uh, whose policies turned out to be completely wrong. But that's a whole different matter than submarining our national security to make money. And then the Kushners got 18 sweetheart mortgages totaling close to a billion dollars that came with federal loan guarantees. Now the Kushners say, and the government agency involved says, oh no, these were just routine business transactions. Nonsense, absolute nonsense. Uh, if, if Jared Kushner had been just a guy in New York who was in financial trouble and had a well-documented reputation as one of the worst slum lords in America, a 251-page judicial decision ripping his family apart for renting apartments where uh, the kitchen sink spewed sewage and, and many other things, he'd never have gotten these sweetheart loans. Uh, so the biggest winners here in the White House were Jared Kushner and his wife, Ivanka. Uh, they made, and there's a range here because the way the government disclosure forms are done. But while serving in the White House, they made between $170 million and more than $640 million over four years. Uh, also, when uh, Donald Trump left the White House, and as I predicted, he did not leave peacefully. I said he would never leave peacefully back in 2015. Jared Kushner set himself up in a new business. And he's now in the Middle East uh, today, I believe, uh, raising billions of dollars from the Saudis and the Emiratis and anybody else who's an enemy of Qatar to manage. So, you know, this was uh, this was an opportunity to get rich from the White House, and that's how they saw it. And at the same time, they keep saying, "I'm the champion of the forgotten man." Every decision Donald said in his inaugural will be made with the uh, interests of the forgotten men and women. And then he went and did the exact opposite. He said, "I will drain the swamp of all these Wall Street predators." And then he appoints the most voracious Wall Street predators around to high government positions, and turns Washington into a paradise for uh, swamp dwellers. And I was going to say, even even at the end there.
0: I mean, you had, uh, as you write about in the book, uh, Trump pardoning uh daddy uh charles kushner and you also had uh you know jared flying to israel touting all this stuff uh about you know trump and netanyahu while he's you know raking up the bill with these hotels and also uh i guess applying for a what 100 million dollar worth of corporate bonds on the tel aviv stock exchange i mean they're just
1: it's wild yeah. I mean, there's just, there's never been anything like it. Now, millions, tens of millions of people adore Donald Trump. Many of them clearly regard him as a god. There's a new book out, by the way, about men who become gods. Uh, it's a fascinating new book. Uh, or a demigod. God, not god, demigod, a half god, as the Greeks said, many of those in their myths. And they are willfully blind to the reality of what he did. I've done lots of talk radio shows and uh, people will call in and, and they'll say, you know, Joe Biden's just as corrupt. And I go, no, he's not. Oh, he got a billion and a half dollars out of China. No, he didn't. That's a complete lie, didn't happen. There was something that happened, but that's not what happened. There was a business uh, where they tried to raise money and I don't think they actually ever raised that much money. Um, uh, every president, by the way, has had hangers on and family members who tried to Uh, enrich themselves. Billy Carter, I mean, Jimmy Carter was as unbelievably honest as you could possibly be, but Billy tried to make money off the White House. Richard Nixon's brother, Donald, same thing. Uh, But it's totally different when the president himself is engaged in these things, encouraging them, uh, submarining our national interest for them.
0: So I have a lot of listeners that are interested in issues related to foreign policy. And uh, since we talked about Saudi Arabia and, and Israel and the United Arab Emirates, uh, do you think that the sort of coziness he had with all these uh, different figures and you know the, the financing uh, with all of that and his organizations, could that have affected our foreign policy in the Middle East with things like uh, the Iran deal?
1: Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. Uh, first of all, every other major country involved in the 2015 deal with Iran continued to support it as a way to uh, hold back what was going on in Iran. Uh, Iran is uh, should naturally be the dominant country in the Middle East. It is a sophisticated, highly educated populace. Uh, that has thousands of years of cultural development, unlike, say, the Saudis, a country invented in 1926 by a warlord who went around killing and beheading his enemies until he had control of most of the Arabian Peninsula. And the, the Iranians are, without a doubt, a threat to the U.S. and to Israel. But the way to deal with that is not to stop the... Uh, deal that allowed inspections and limited their nuclear program, um, it was instead to be sophisticated and smart about how to approach this. And Donald just comes in and blows it up. And uh, the same thing with the Paris Environmental Accords. We're not gonna do that.
0: This is not um, a man who understands diplomacy.
1: Well, he, Donald, here's the important thing to understand. Donald literally doesn't know anything. And, and let me give you my favorite example of this. Donald claims to be the greatest expert in the world on 22 subjects. One of them, he says, I am the greatest expert in the history of the world about taxes. Nobody knows more about taxes than Donald Trump. Okay, I'm a world recognized authority on taxes. I'm brought in all over the world to talk about taxes. My Pulitzer Prize is for taxes, and the Pulitzer Committee said something about my exquisite command of American tax law. I, I'm not a lawyer, but I teach at a law school, and I teach uh, taxes as part of what I teach. I had lunch with Donald one day. We had lunch several times, but this particular day. And I, to test whether he really knew much about taxes, this is in 1990. Um, I tried to show him how he could improve his tax situation. He, I knew he wasn't paying any taxes at the time, but he had unused tax losses. And I'd figured out a way for him to use them within the rules of the New Jersey Casino Control Commission. He couldn't follow what I was saying. Under oath, Donald Trump was asked in his lawsuit against Tim O'Brien, who said he's not a million billionaire. He's worth maybe 150 million or so. Uh, well, what do you know about accounting? I don't know anything about accounting. Mr. Trump, you sure about that? No, I don't know anything about accounting. Not at all. Not in the least. I don't know anything about accounting. If you don't know accounting, you can't know taxes. Uh, They are completely intertwined. And it's all a con. It's all a fraud. And Donald simply makes assertions. He creates his own reality. So he claims to know more about ISIS in the Middle East than our generals. Uh, he says that nobody knows more about nuclear weapons than he does. That one he said, by the way, because what did Barack Obama write his senior thesis in college on? Uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, he's quite knowledgeable on the subject of nuclear weapons. His science advisor and other people I've interviewed have told me. Uh, very sophisticated understanding. of Obama doesn't know anything. And it's all a con. He, he has a college degree, but he didn't earn it. Penn gave it to him he rarely showed up for class and he got credit for working on real estate deals with his dad in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm, you know, uh, who gets college credit for that? So.
0: So one of the things that really stuck out in this book is some of the stories you tell of, uh, you know, supporters of Trump who gave money, I believe to his super PACs uh, that would give small sums and then be tapped again and again until you know they were paying thousands of dollars and these are actually supporters that apparently uh one (laughs) of them uh stacy blatt i believe from kansas city ended up in uh, hospice and you know donald was just draining people like this completely dry it sounds like he has contempt uh for the very people who support him could you talk a little bit about that side of the story
1: Oh, Donald has absolute contempt for the people who uh, uh, love and adore him. Uh, uh, one example of that is uh, Donald is always claiming he's a Christian. In his book Think Big, he spends six pages denouncing Christians as fools, idiots, and schmucks. And in the third case, he doesn't—he he means the most vile Yiddish interpretation of the word schmuck. Uh, he says his life philosophy is a single word revenge. You can't be a Christian and believe in revenge. That's explicitly the message of Jesus Christ. No, no revenge. Turn the other cheek. At the National Prayer Breakfast in 2020, when he was president, and I think it was Andy Biggs, talked about uh, turning the other cheek and being kind to your enemies. Donald got up and said, well, I can't do that. I I believe in revenge. So uh, Donald, uh, during the fall 2020 campaign, is running out of money. They started out with a billion dollars and a lot of it evaporated, and I suspect a lot of it was stolen by people around him because Donald doesn't pay attention to and doesn't understand all sorts of things. So uh, Rush Limbaugh one day told people that Donald needs your help. He's got to stop the steal. Send money to Donald. And Stacey Blatt, who is already in hospice care and who has an income of $1,000 a month, sends $500 to help Donald a one-time gift from this dying man. But the next week, they tapped him for another 500 and another 500 and another 500 until they took every penny he had. And they did this to thousands and thousands of Trump's supporters. Now, after the campaign was over, they refunded the money. They basically got a zero interest loan from these people, but screwing up their finances. Uh, and the reason for this was buried in the fine print was a little notice that unless you check the box you gave them the right to keep tapping your bank account who reads the fine print in the contract i mean you rent a car you get a three-page fine print statement anybody read those things i have because i wrote a book about it but nobody reads those things this was a a, a thievery plain and simple it was sophisticated but it was thievery and this and, just real quick not to interrupt you but this affected people like uh you know,
0: I think you mentioned one of them is a 78-year-old California resident, Victor Amelino, who, you know, he donated 990 dollars. They kept tapping it. It ended up at 8,000, and he's retired. He can't right. pay that. It's it, right. this is just
1: mind blowing to me. It's it's yeah. horrible. It's it's robbery. It's like robbing little old ladies. Joe, in Donald's mind, there's nothing wrong with what he did your money is is my money. You're not entitled to anything, but I'm special. You know, I'm the only one. Remember, I'm the only one who can save us. I'm the only one who's competent to be president. Everybody else is an idiot. Anybody who worked for me and then disagreed with me or criticized me even lightly, you're an idiot. Donald calls me the weird dude because I've spent 33 years, you know, collecting documents on him and chronicling what he's doing because as an investigative reporter, I track things. I mean, I'm well known among other journalists for stories that I covered across 10 years in three newspapers. So Donald sees nothing wrong with this, and it shows his utter contempt. The same thing with the Wall Charity. There's a the the what I in the book here I set out to, and all every reviewer so far has endorsed this. Uh, do a tapestry to make a narrative that you would make sense of what he's doing. And one of the things Donald did was he found ways to turn charity into a money-making enterprise, to effectively loot money that should have gone to children dying of cancer who were at St. Jude's in Memphis. Uh, Donald hates dogs with a passion, and he, when he attacks people, especially women, he uses dog. You know, she's a lying, sweating, nasty, ugly dog. Well, he ripped off a, a charity to save dogs, to rescue them for $2 million. And, and to, it's really crucial to understand that he doesn't, he doesn't feel there's anything wrong with that because he doesn't have a conscience. And there are lots of people like him. I, I don't mean to make Donald sound like he's the only person. I've written about people like this my whole life who they don't have a conscience, their relationships are transactional, their marriages are transactional, their business relationships, they're not romantic, erotic relationships. And yet millions and millions of people don't see this. Think of all the people who believe he's a great businessman. Uh, I used to teach in a graduate school of business and I've spent a lot of time over my life studying management theory and co-founding a successful little, several successful little businesses on the side. And uh, anybody who watched that show who knows business found it to be ridiculous. It it violated every principle of how you do good management. But people who don't know that, and why would you know that? You're a a factory worker. You're a bus driver. You're a school teacher with five years of college. Why would you have any idea what management theory is and how leadership works? And this TV show uh, created this myth of Donald, the great business genius and modern Midas. Uh, Everything he touches turns to gold. Uh, By the way, remember that uh, Midas is a tragedy in which he touches his deeply beloved daughter, his Ivanka, and turns her into a statue of gold. So I I know we mentioned We Build the Wall a a few
0: times, and I want to note for listeners that We Build the Wall fundraiser, this was Bannon and and company trying to do like a private fundraiser. This is different than, you know, we're going to build a federal wall. Uh, what are the, what's the sort of brief sketch you can
1: give of that whole uh, vignette within your book? So there's a disabled veteran of the Gulf Wars named Brian Colfage who lost a couple of limbs. And and my father was 100% disabled veteran in World War II. So I have a great deal of empathy for people who went to war for the country and things turned out badly for them. And he started this uh, campaign to use charitable money to build a wall. First of all, it's not physically possible to build a wall along the entire border with Mexico. And the last estimate I saw from government engineers was I think over $50 billion. So they raise uh, more than $25 million. And Brian Colfage constantly says, I know people should be suspicious of me. I have no track record doing this but I will not take one penny from this. None of us will take a penny. It will all go to the wall. Well, Brian Colfage bought himself a fancy speedboat and took $350,000 in cash and bought jewelry for his family and a bunch of other stuff. Steve Bannon reached in when he got on the board and took a million dollars. They had a fundraising uh, exercise on the Rio Grande River in New Mexico. Don Jr. and his girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who, by the way has an interesting history if people I want to go look up who she used to be involved with. Uh, they go to this event, endorse it, Don Jr. endorses it, calls it a wonderful project, and they show off this little bit of barrier they built, which is junk, wouldn't stop anybody uh, for any period of time, and may well interfere with the natural flow of water along the Rio Grande in violation of our treaty with Mexico. The... There was never any prospect that this thing would succeed. Nobody's going to raise $53 billion. It was a scam from the beginning. But when Trump pardoned Bannon for stealing the million dollars, he didn't pardon the three other people, Brian Colfage, the disabled vet, and his two confederates. They are scheduled to go on trial next year in federal court as criminals. And they are, and I hope they're convicted, and I hope they get serious prison time for what they did. But Donald reaches in and protects his buddy, Steve Bannon. Um, This is how a dictatorship in the making works. You have to take care of your friends. And once you get complete power, and remember Donald said, I have an article Two that says I can do anything as president. Once you manage to get complete power, which Trump never did, then you have to go after your enemies. And well, it might not happen right away, if Donald Trump succeeds in becoming our dictator, down that road eventually lead firing squads. They will round people up and they will shoot them. And I'm sure, I, I said on a radio show one day when my children were around that I would get shot in the second round. And when I hung up, two of my uh, then teenage or early 20s daughters uh, were snickering. I said, what are you laughing about? They said, did you just tell this radio show that you get shot in the second round if there's a, a fascist takeover over the government. And I said, yeah, they both erupted in laughter and said, no, dad, you get shot in the first round.
0: So it's interesting in talking about this because I'm recalling an interview I did with uh, Jean Guerrero, who I, I believe she works for the Los Angeles Times now, but uh, we were talking about the whole we build the wall incident. And uh, she actually got to meet Bannon. And I said, well, what do you think of Bannon after having you know spoken to him? I think she uh, drove her home after the event and she said, You know, I don't think he believes in anything. I, I think he's just a con man grifter. And I, we keep coming back to this issue of con men grifters. And to me, the Trump
1: presidency, they're like gangsters. Uh, do you think that's a fair assessment? It's, it's oh, yeah, like. Oh, yeah, no, no. Don- Listen, Donald Trump is the third generation head of a four generation white collar crime family that got started in America in the 1800s. His grandfather Friedrich fled Bismarck's draft in Germany and came to America. He lied to get a citizenship. He ran whore houses in Seattle, Everett, Washington and the Yukon territory. He built a hotel on land he didn't own. This was not a hotel for sleeping. It was for, as they said in the day, sporting ladies. And uh, he tried to go back to, Canada, to uh, Germany. The Germans wrote him a letter, which I have a copy of, saying, you're a traitor. You're uh, a draft dodger. Get the hell out of our country. We don't care how much money you brought back with you. Get out. He goes back to New York. He lives a very prosperous life, even though his only visible business is a cigar shop, a tobacco shop with a wooden Indian on the sidewalk. So clearly that was not his real business. We just don't know what was. He dies in the uh, pandemic of 1918-21. Uh, you would think Donald Trump would really pay attention to the pandemic because of that. Instead, of course, he made up all these lies and told the public one thing and Bob Woodward another about... Uh, I think, he, I think he, told, he told Bob
0: Woodward, you know, this thing, it, it's a real killer, but yeah. know, he's telling a different thing to the public.
1: Yeah, and it's just classic Donald and he would see nothing wrong with that. And uh, so um, uh, his father, uh, Fred Trump, Uh, who's uh, 13 when his dad dies. His father, uh, as a young man, is very industrious. He starts a business building garages. He's a teenager and he has a business building garages in Brooklyn and Queens. Because after all, you you don't have to have plumbing and a lot of wiring and all that to build a garage, right? You just got to throw up a wooden structure. He makes a lot of money. He starts one of the first self-service grocery stores and sells at the beginning of the depression for a million dollars. And then he rips off the federal government for in today's money, about $40 million, building subsidized housing in Brooklyn and Queens for returning GIs and sailors from World War II. He was the, he's said to be the first person in line to get these government subsidies. And when Eisenhower is told that he's made all this extra money he's not supposed to make, because there's a contract limiting your profits. He throws a fit in the White House. I and mean, of course he did. Eisenhower is the man who had to send all those young American men to their deaths on the beaches of France, right? And when Fred Trump is called before the Senate Banking and Currency Committee, first of all, he doesn't show up when he's supposed to. He shows up hours later, and he goes, gentlemen, gentlemen, you all misunderstand. I'm not a war profiteer yes, there's $4 million that uh, is beyond what I was supposed to earn, but I didn't take the money. It's sitting in the bank. Where the hell else would you put $4 million today? in today's money about $40 million. Um, I mean, it's just absurd. And the, the, the senators didn't know what to do to that answer. And just like Donald, Fred understood how to manipulate politicians in the press. So when he wanted to build the first apartment project that was going to have the name Trump on it, he had to destroy a Coney Island um, uh, thing called uh, the Fun House. Uh, We don't have them anymore, but when I was a kid, there were places you'd go to, and you could go down wooden slides, and you could walk through a turning barrel and try not to fall over, look at mirrors that made you look tall or thin or whatever, and so he hired a group of young women in what for the time were pretty scanty two-piece swimsuits that we'd think were prudish today, but were considered pretty out there in 19, uh, whenever this was 57 or something. And uh, maybe it was in the sixties. And they handed out bricks to politicians and journalists to throw at the funny face, which was the big glass painted uh, symbol or icon of the fun house. So Donald learned from his father showmanship and how to compromise people. After all, if you're a city councilman in New York and you threw the first brick into the uh, funny face, you can't exactly later denounce the project as being uh, something inappropriate and monstrous. And then Donald, now the third generation of white-collar criminals, what does Donald do? he is given a degree he didn't earn by Penn, And he goes to New York and he makes a beeline to Roy Cohn, the notorious Roy Cohn, who was McCarthy's lawyer. Um, he uh, begins to engage in all sorts of dubious practices uh, as advised by Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn taught him two important lessons. One, if law enforcement comes after you, you attack law enforcement, you're corrupt, you're all dishonest, you're abusing your position to delay, 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 delay and deny, deny, deny. And you saw those strategies. Donald Trump denounced all of the American intelligence agencies. He denounced the FBI. He said, I trust Vladimir Putin. I don't trust the American intelligence agencies. People who still support a president after he said that, I mean, imagine if Barack Obama had said that. Oh, my goodness. He would have been impeached the same day and convicted. So
0: before we wrap up, I know I know we have like maybe 12 minutes left. Uh, there's a figure I want to talk about because I feel like very few people have covered this. And when I saw it in your book, I got excited because I've covered on this show before the figure of Tom Barak. Uh, could you talk a little bit about him and who he is and how it connects to all this?
1: Tom Barak uh, was born in Southern California. His father was an immigrant from uh, Lebanon. Uh, he grew up speaking both English and Arabic, and he's a very hardworking guy. And once he became an adult and finished his education, he went to the Middle East and he made contacts with wealthy Saudis, particularly wealthy Saudis, but other people in the Middle East. And he got them to invest in American real estate. He comes back to America. He starts a company, uh, uh, Colony Capital, if I remember the name correctly, but they changed the name over time. And uh, he is this major investor for Middle Eastern interests. and. Early on, like me, he realizes Donald Trump's a big force in American life, and he inserts himself into Donald's life and becomes ultimately the guy who is uh, the head of the inaugural committee raising money for the inauguration. And one of the chapters in the book is about Tom Barrick and the inaugural committee raising $107 million dollars. Now, Barack Obama, eight years earlier, raised $53 million. Uh, They had eight or nine balls. They had unbelievable numbers of music acts they paid to bring in. Uh, So they had major, major expenses. And even so, they couldn't spend the $53 million. Donald has two balls. They're not even B-list acts. They're much further down the feeding chain, by and large. Where did the money go? And it turns out that Stephanie Wolkoff, who is a well known and respected party planner, she's the person who every year arranges the biggest social event for the elite in America, the Met Gala at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Uh, Melania asks her as her best friend to please take charge of the inaugural festivities. And she's asked by one of Trump's emissaries to take money off the books. And, and when this is first presented to her, she's like, what, it, it, it was so out of left field, it took her a second to recognize it. And then she says, absolutely not, because she's not gonna commit a crime, which is what she was asked to do. And uh, uh, the, once all this started to come out, the Trump White House dirtied her up. Oh, she got the most money, $26 million. No. They gave her a check for $26 million, almost all $25 million, almost all of which she immediately, the very same day, passed on to Trump cronies as instructed. She got a fee of $480,000. Now, that's a lot of money, $480,000. But for an event planner of her level and the amount of work she did, that's actually a reasonable fee. Uh, That's what the market fee would be. In fact, I actually think it's low. Um, She could have charged a million dollars and it would have been a reasonable fee. Where did all this money go? That's what the the Attorney General of Washington, D.C. is investigating. And what money wasn't reported? What money came in that shouldn't have come in? How many of the people who donated to this and the campaign were fronts for Russians, Saudis, Chinese? We still don't know. And part of the reason for that, and part of the reason Donald Trump has gotten away with everything for all these years is we have very weak, white-collar crime laws in America. There are way too many defenses. Uh, the the uh, uh, You have to basically, as a prosecutor, push something through a very thin needle hole. And it's very difficult. And people who know how to play the game can get away with massive frauds because our... Country's laws simply are aimed at street crime, blue-collar crime. People who hold up a bodega with a water pistol and get life in prison for it—that's actually happened. Uh, or steal nine videotapes to give their kids at Christmas because they're broke and get 55 years in prison, which our Supreme Court has upheld as reasonable. Uh, you can steal with an ink pen, a contract with lies, with what's called puffery, claiming things are bigger than they are, better than they are, and get away with it. And Donald is a master at that. And the people around him, the people who hang out with him, they essentially are themselves criminals. And they're uh, hanging on to him and and his uh, his, uh, uh, grifting, including the two cabinet secretaries I read about, who did atrocious things in office, uh, but hardly anybody knows about because you know, the news story appears here and the news story appears there. What I did was take all these and weave them together so, so you can understand it. And you, by the way, you don't have to have a degree in finance or know the law. Anybody with a high school education will be able to understand everything in my book.
0: I also wanted to touch upon this briefly, this issue of uh, super PACs and things like dark money. As you mentioned those things a few times in the book, and you mentioned ways that we, we could uh, have reform in this on these issues what do you think the reforms we need are when it comes to things like super PACs?
1: Uh, Joe, thank you. That's a very good question. The last chapter of my book is a bunch of solutions. Um, and among these are uh, that we need to not allow politicians to raise money under the guise that they have a super PAC and then spend it on themselves. Uh, if they don't, if they don't, um, uh, spend the money on what they said they were raising it for explicitly, like stop the steal and paying lawyers, uh, they should require to disgorge that money. Um, uh, and, and in fact, I would suggest, uh, I believe Congress should say, you don't get to pick who gets it either. Uh, you have to tell the government and the government will decide how it's going to have that money distributed or returned to the people who made the gifts. Um, there are a lot of people who say, well, we should uh, require a candidate for president to make their tax return public. Well, we can't do that. The Constitution does not allow that. But there's an easy workaround. All Congress has to do is pass a law that says uh, if you run for president and you know about 800 people a year of each cycle run for president. So we don't want to affect all of them. But let's say you run for president and you come in first or second in one primary. Um your tax returns will be made public by the IRS for at least six years. And Congress can do that. In the 1920s, tax returns were public record. Newspapers ran stories about so-and-so made $5,132,411.16 and paid a tax of whatever it was on that. And Congress absolutely has the power to do that. And by going back at least six years, you can't do what Mitt Romney did. Mitt Romney put out two years of his tax returns, but he knew for years he was gonna run, and that allowed him to orchestrate his finances to appear the way he wanted them to appear. Um, In the book, I go through other reforms, uh, and we also need to recognize that the Supreme Court's decisions called Buckley, Vallejo, and most importantly, Citizens United have essentially made candidates for federal office, House, Senate, and Congress, House, Senate, and the White House, real constituents, they're donors, not voters, they're donors, especially the House members, because they're not nearly as well-known by the voters. We need to fix that and recognize that the uh, Supreme Court has really vitiated this. And finally, we've got to undo the Supreme Court decision in a case called McDonnell. The governor of Virginia received from a businessman who wanted the help from the state of Virginia for his business, uh, the use of a Ferrari, jewelry, uh, shopping trips for his wife and daughter at at very expensive dress shops, you know, $10,000 dresses kind of shops. And the Supreme Court said, well, unless you can show that this dress was in return for this favor, there's no crime. My goodness. I mean, they, they just legalized bribery. And we need to we need to fix that as well. And Congress has a duty to do so. It's not going to happen so long as we have a narrowly divided Congress. Uh, nothing significant is going to change or get fixed until we either decide we're going to become a right-wing fascistic country with a minority party in charge because they can throw out votes they don't like, which is what's going on right now, this low-grade civil war we've been in since January 6th, or We're going to decide we're going to become a more democratic country with more freedom and then go to work on fixing all of these problems in the laws governing political behavior, fundraising, white collar crime.
0: So in closing here, the the other reason I wanted to have you back on the show to talk about this book is I I think there's a lot of people both left and right uh, that have this mentality of well, it's over now. Let, let's stop talking about Trump. Uh, there, there's especially, I think, segments of the left that can be very critical of Biden or, or, or one, more progressive reforms that think, oh, we shouldn't talk about uh, Trump anymore. That's over now. Um, but I disagree. I think that if you're critical, especially of, you know, unregulated, completely unregulated capitalism, Uh, you should look at Donald Trump, because I think he is the uh, apotheosis of what we have when there is no regulation and there is no sense of duty uh, to one country,
1: one's country and one's uh, people. So first of all, and this is what I taught at Syracuse Law for eight years to third year law students and graduate business students, everything is regulated. There is no such thing as deregulation or no regulation. Baseball regulates how many stitches are on the ball, the color of the yarn, the material used. Um, there's only new regulation, and the trend since Ronald Reagan's election to the presidency has been regulations against consumers and in favor of powerful and wealthy interests, especially corporate interests, and limiting the access for people who be wronged along the way. So uh, you know, universities regulate dating. When I say that to my students, they look at me sort of quizzically, and I say, come on, think about it, think it through. And and somebody eventually says, oh, sexual harassment policy. And I go, right, that's a form of regulating dating. How many times uh, does saying no to someone asking you out uh, then become harassment? So uh, that's one. Two, Donald is still trying to become our dictator. He will have raised by sometime next year, probably more than a half a billion dollars. Through his various uh, fundraising schemes. Uh, the Republicans across the country are replacing Democrats and independents on election boards and passing laws that will allow them to overturn the will of the people, which is inherently anti democratic. So this isn't over. And we need to recognize that. And there are more importantly, there are people in the wings who. Unlike Donald, our competent managers, unlike Donald, are hard workers, unlike Donald, uh, know how to manipulate the government because they have long experience. People like Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz who want to become president. Uh, uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida. Uh, Rick Scott, the senator from Florida who stole a billion and a half dollars from the taxpayers and unbelievably was not prosecuted and sent to prison. And so, no, we can't ignore that uh, Trump, this is still ongoing. The Trumpers want us to ignore it. On the other side of this, um, Joe Biden is passed really massive important legislation. The economy has improved unbelievably. He's produced the economic performance Trump promised and never delivered in the comeback while the pandemic is still on. Pandemic isn't over and yet 6 million jobs so far this year seven percent GDP. Um, But the problem is that the Biden White House and the Democrats do not know how to market. Donald Trump has slogans. Uh, Grover Norquist has slogans. The Republicans know how to reach people at a gut level. Joe Biden, like Hillary Clinton, gets up there and goes blah, 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 blah. Uh, He comes out and says, we need $3.5 trillion to build back better. No, wrong way. The way to say it, and I wrote a column at DC Report about this is, would you invest less than $3 a day, less than the cost of a cup of coffee on average in a restaurant, in a wealthier, healthier future for yourself, your children, your grandchildren? That's what I want, less than $3 a day. And by the way, 85% of you will get a tax cut. And the cost of this will be borne by the people at the very top, the one in a thousand families who Donald Trump gave massive tax cuts to. They're gonna pay the price for this in terms of higher taxes. But he doesn't say it that way. And uh, frankly, uh, the communications office of the Biden White House couldn't sell ice cream to children on a hot July afternoon. I mean, Jen Psaki's been brilliant in the, in the press room, but beyond that, they don't know how to message. Uh, Al Franken had me on his podcast and we talked about this and then he said, you're right, Uh, every Democratic bumper sticker ends with, continued on next bumper sticker. So no, this hasn't gone away. Donald Trump is still trying to be our dictator. Other people are looking at this and saying, oh, look at all these weaknesses in the law. I can become America's king. And if we don't pay attention, our freedoms are gonna go away. It really matters. People, if you have to stand in line for 10 hours to vote, I'm sorry, that's unfair and it's unreasonable but you gotta go do it. And you need to make sure you're registered. Then you need to make sure they haven't thrown out your voter registration. Uh, this is serious. Our democracy is in deep trouble and it's entirely possible that five years from now, we won't be a democracy anymore. We aren't by the standards of the world right now. There are a whole bunch of reports that we're barely a democracy right now.
0: And I, I just wanted to add one thing to that. I, I promise to let you go after this, but I wanted to get your thought. You know. You talked about Hawley and and these other figures and and Trump himself. I just want to say that one thought that's been going around in my head lately is that I'm to the point where I don't want to use the term conservative unless it's in quotes, because I don't I think conservatism in a lot of ways is dead in America. I don't think Trump is conservative. I don't think uh, he has anything in common with the intellectual tradition of people like Edmund Burke. And Russell Kirk, he would not even know who those people are and would probably give you the stink eye or the side eye if he uh, heard you say those names. This is not conservatism. This is not a movement that seeks to conserve much of anything, uh, much less American society.
1: No, you're, uh, you're exactly right about that, uh, uh, Joe. Um, uh, Edmund Burke, who famously said the revenue of the state is the state, would be spinning in his grave over this stuff. Uh, These people are reactionaries, they're authoritarians, they're my way or the highway. And it's really unfortunate to see this because for decades, the Republican Party sold itself as we're the party of ideas. They don't have any ideas. They wanted to get rid of Obamacare, which was a conservative idea, uh, the same one that applies to mandatory automobile insurance. Uh, everybody may get into a wreck and somebody uh, who is uninsured hits you. That's terrible for you. So we're going to require everyone to have at least a minimal level of car insurance. That was the idea that the Heritage Foundation came up with for healthcare, because taxpayers at the end of the day foot the bill. And no, Obamacare is not exactly the pristine version of the Heritage Plan. But in principle, it's that idea uh, of responsibility, and the Republicans have abandoned that. And by the way, you'll notice they always promised they're gonna repeal and replace Obamacare. They never had a replacement. They've, they've never had a replacement and that's because their plan is in place. What are they gonna do? So no, the people who are called conservative in the news, they're not conservatives, they're reactionaries, they're authoritarians, they're wannabe dictators. And we really need to avoid these sorts of labels Uh, The New York Times, where I reported for many years, never once questioned the bona fides of groups like the Heritage Foundation or the Cato Institute, which was libertarian when I would cite them. And I tried not to cite groups like that very often, but sometimes it was necessary. But if I mentioned uh, uh, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities or Citizens for Tax Justice, oh, I had to explain, you know, their bona fides. Uh, because there was this great fear of appearing not to be uh, even handed and the assumption that conservative groups, because they have principles of let's stick with the status quo, uh, were more to be trusted. But we've abandoned any thought of conservatism in the Republican Party with a handful of exceptions. You know, Liz Cheney is a conservative. Uh, You like her politics or hate them, she's a principled conservative. Uh, Jeff Flake, who didn't run for re-election to the US Senate because he would lose the primary was a pretty true to his word, libertarian conservative. Um, but those people are disappearing. Just like, you know, when I was a young man like you didn't have any gray hair, there were people known as liberal Republicans. Here in Western New York, where I live uh, near Rochester, there are lots of people who I still see as uh, in that tradition, liberal 1960s Republicans they don't exist in the party structure anymore. They're Trump publicans. They're people who frankly hate America as it is. Uh, They understand that make America great again is code for make America white again. They want uh, blacks, Latinos, and Asians to know their place, which is to shut up and not complain. They want women to be subordinate to men by and large, not entirely, but by and large. And uh, uh, they want to call themselves Christians and say this is a Christian nation when, A, it's absolutely not, and the Constitution makes that very clear, and B, the philosophy they're espousing is not the philosophy of the New Testament. Uh, it is the philosophy Donald Trump spreads, revenge, hatred, um, not uh, love, kindness, turning the other cheek.
0: And, and all of it goes against, the to me, the core tenet of conservatism, which is uh, maintaining the stability of society. It is totally destabilization. Things that
1: work, we should, should, and I believe very firmly, when we have something that works, we should be very careful about tinkering with it or throwing it out wholesale. If you think we should go to Medicare for all, well, let's pick a state and do an experiment and see how it works out because maybe things won't work out the way you think. So be cautious about change. Don't not change, but be thoughtful and cautious. That's how we got the terrible electricity markets we have that raise prices rather than lower them because we just, half the state legislatures adopted them. And I've written at length about how they don't work and why they don't work and how they took a naive view of, oh, this is what will happen that's good. And they didn't think for a moment about people who look at the same set of rules and say, oh, I can manipulate those rules really easily and get rich and screw everybody. So yeah, we should, we should embrace change cautiously and after testing to make sure that what we think is good actually will produce the good we think and adjusting as we go along. That's conservatism. That's not what Trump and Ted Cruz and the others are about. They're about authoritarian power. They're about taking from the middle class, the poor, and even the upper middle class and taking for themselves Um, they are not about liberty unless it's liberty to say what they want to say, not what they don't want to hear. I want to thank
0: you again, David K. Johnston. I hope this will be uh, uh, one of many conversations we have. I'd love to have you back on in the future. Uh, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. It's always incredibly insightful and incisive. How can my listeners get a copy of your book?
1: Well, The Big Cheat is available in bookstores all over the country. You can get it from the online booksellers like Barnes & Noble and Amazon. It's not a long read. Uh, It's about 80,000 words, uh, plus all the documentation in the back if you want to check my facts. And I do hope people get it and read it. I hope you think about sending it to your friends who think Donald Trump is uh, uh, always acting in the public good, because if you don't read this book, it is not possible unless you're Uh, complete nutcase about following 16 newspapers uh, to know what Donald Trump did. And we need to know that because you can't fix a problem if you don't understand it. So I hope people get the big cheat. I hope they read it. I hope they uh, send copies as gifts to uh, friends, family, and even people they joust with uh, ideologically.
0: Thank you again, David K. Johnston. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David K. Johnston, author of The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. I think David's book is one you should definitely consider picking up, and it could make a good stocking stuffer for the holidays. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at Patreon.com slash Parallax Again, that's Patreon.com slash Parallax There's a $1, 5 10 and $15 tier. Hell, I should even mention there's a $100 tier. Not expecting many to join that tier, but if you really, really want to help out the show, that's one way to do it. In any case, there's different benefits to each tier, and one of the benefits at the $10 tier and above is a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Michael. To Parallax Michael. The way out
1: is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. Right? You so, know, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety, problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight
0: no nostalgia for old, allegedly, more authentic communities
1: or whatever. I'm not afraid. 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 I'm not afraid.